one of my favorite descriptions of the spiritual path is, and really of our predicament as humans, has been described as the big squeeze. And that's the words coined by Pema Chodron. And what she's talking about is this squeeze between this underlying intuition that we have of the mystery and vastness of awareness, of the sense of the what we are, the loving presence that's really our nature, the squeeze between that and the fact that we seem to every day be caught in some conditioning that keeps us in a kind of trance, where we're inside a lot of thinking, leaning into the future, remembering the past, reactive, not really remembering, remembering the, the vastness of who we are. And so the spiritual path can really be described in terms of forgetting and remembering. And it's an, actually a wise way to consider it because what it points to is that we're not trying to get somewhere, we're not trying to polish ourselves up or become different, we're remembering, we're reconnecting, we're coming home to a, what's sometimes described as a secret beauty, a kind of, uh, the truth of our radiance that is just obscured because we're caught in these habits, this conditioning. So it's part of our innate capacity. I mean, it's our habit to get stuck and forget, and it's part of our innate capacity, every single one of us, to have a kind of awareness that lets us see the conditioning And in the seeing, in the seeing of the trance, in the seeing of the stuckness, there's a natural release or reopening to something larger, more whole, more true. In retreats, in daily life, the perhaps one of the most important questions for each of us individually is, what helps me to remember? I think we're all asking that in some way. You know, really, what helps me to come back to what really I value, I cherish, I know as a bigger truth? We know how we get caught in believing small stuff. We know how we get waylaid. How do we remember? And in Buddhism, there are three traditional gateways, three paths that each have their own flavor but are totally interrelated. They're called the Triple Jewel. And these gateways are are all ways to authentic remembering. And they're described as refuges. And I've come to love the word refuge. I think sometimes in the West, refuge is misunderstood as, I'm in trouble, I want to dive into some safety out there that'll take care of things, where's my lifeboat? But true refuge is really a remembering or a letting go into or a surrendering into truth. And so there's three different flavors of that that we're going to explore tonight. Now, again, in classical Buddhism, there's a ritual for remembering these gateways. And I've seen for myself and many others that you can recite these refuges and have it be completely mechanical, have no visceral sense of the waking up that's possible in them. 
So my hope for tonight is that we can together turn this into kind of a living ritual where we really let ourselves open to the aliveness of each of these gateways. And I stopped the meditation a little bit early because we're going to do the three, three meditations on the refuges as part of our evening together. I wanted to do that tonight because I'm finding in my own practice that by taking some time at the beginning of every meditation to reflect on these three refuges is, is kind of a shortcut for homecoming. It cuts through a lot of the mishigash, you know, kind of just arrives, I arrive more quickly. So you can explore it for yourself. The first refuge has been described as refuge in the Buddha, which really means refuge in Buddha nature, or the awakened heart-mind. So it's um, really refuge in awareness, cutting through. Just I absolutely give myself to recognizing and inhabiting the awareness, the pure light of my true nature. That's refuge in the Buddha. Refuge in the Dharma, which means path or truth, in, it can be distilled down to taking refuge in the actual moment-to-moment experience and the truths of that experience that we discover. What's exactly happening now? And then refuge in the Sangha is refuge in the relational fields. It's refuge in what's really happening between us and discovering the oneness and the love that's here. I've, for myself, taken to thinking of who we are as an ocean with waves of experience. We have waves of thoughts and waves of behavior patterns and emotions running through us and so on. And that refuge in the Dharma is refuge in just opening to the different ways of experience just as they are. And it's what we're practicing here. That's what we do here with the Vipassana or mindfulness. We're learning to, without judging, without manipulating or controlling, to open to this life just as it is, take refuge in the waves. Refuge in the Sangha is taking and sensing, oh, these waves all belong and influence each other and belong to the ocean. So we sense that underlying oneness and there's a natural, what the, when the heart senses oneness, the flavor experiences love refuge in the Sangha. And refuge in the Buddha is realizing the ocean itself, this vast, edgeless, awake space of awareness. So that might or might not be helpful as a metaphor for you. The Pali word for faith is Siddha. And it means resting one's heart on what's true. And these pathways of remembering are really a practice of wise faith. Not blind faith where we're out of fear holding on to something, but a willingness, a courageous willingness to rest this kind of small self-conditioning in something larger and more true. A beginning place in exploring true refuge is to get really clear on false refuge. It's essential. Otherwise, we don't really see how we are moment to moment taking refuge but in a way that's fear-based and contracting us, not liberating us. So when I talk about 
false refuge in both Buddhism and Western psychology. There's the understanding that we are absolutely rigged, our nervous systems, our psychology, our biology, to when there's pleasantness, grasp, when there's unpleasantness, resist, when there's neither to kind of go blank, inattention. And false refuge is a kind of misunderstanding of what will bring happiness. False refuge is the, uh, the sense that, well, if that's pleasant, then if only I can have a lot of it, then my life will work out. So then our false refuge is acquiring and acquiring and acquiring. A young man once asked God how long a million years was to him. God replied, a million years to me is just like a single second in your time. Then the young man asked God what a million dollars was to him. God replied, a million dollars to me is just like a single penny to you. Then the young man got up his courage and asked God, could I have one of your pennies? God smiled and replied, certainly, just a second. (laughs) So false refuge is where our attention and energy and intention gets fixated on what we think will help us. Often it's in the form of running away. We take false refuge by running away, whether it's in a painful relationship, running away by judging the person and putting them down and distancing from them, or whether it's through using drugs or alcohol. Charlotte Joko Beck says, return to that which we have spent a lifetime hiding from to rest in the bodily experience of the present moment, even if it is a feeling of being humiliated, of failing, of abandonment, of unfairness. When we take false refuge, we're running away from something right here in the present moment that we don't want to be with. So it's a very powerful and revealing inquiry if we want to get clear on false refuge to sense, well, right this moment, what am I running away from? And you can, if you want, close your eyes and just just for a moment, this isn't a meditation, you don't have to even adjust how you're sitting. (laughs) But just for a moment, what am I running away from? What am I hiding from? and just check your body and your heart. And very often if we just ask the question, what am I hiding from? What am I avoiding? We can immediately sense with that honest inquiry, that sincerity, that there's some sort of a clutch in our hearts, a kind of contraction, an uneasiness, a restlessness, perhaps a loneliness or a sadness. Maybe there's not. Maybe we're feeling buoyant or peaceful. And there might be some sense of what am I trying to hold on to? And maybe there's no holding or running away. Maybe you're exquisitely present. And then that's beautiful to acknowledge. Everything is fine just as it is. I don't want anything different. One Zen nun put it, thank you very much. I have no complaints whatsoever. So what am I running from is a useful one since we run a lot. And then the the follow-up inquiry, so how do I run? What's my strategy? And I've talked a lot in this group, you can open your eyes if you'd like, 
about our different strategies of taking false refuge. And again, part of waking up from the trance, I talked about the big squeeze, part of waking up from the conditioning that keeps us locked in a sense of I'm small, I'm insufficient, or I'm better than other people, but whatever it is that keeps us separate and not free is recognizing our strategy recognizing the way we leave the present moment. Most of us take false refuge in the mental control tower. We spend a huge amount of time, way beyond what is necessary for survival, for thriving, for creativity, for whatever, churning away, trying to figure things out, trying to, you know, just judging and evaluating and planning and so on. False refuge is when we're trying to manage experience. And I've described how John O'Donohue put it that we're so busy managing our experience that we paper over the great mystery that's here. So busy trying to make sure everything turns out okay. I like this story. It, It starts, it was autumn and the Indians on a remote reservation asked their new chief if the winter was going to be cold or mild. Since he was an Indian chief in a modern society, he had never been taught the old ways of attuning, and when he looked at the sky, he couldn't tell what the weather was going to be. Nevertheless, to be on the safe side, he replied to his tribe that the winter was indeed going to be cold and that the members of the village should collect wood to be prepared. But also, being a practical kind of fellow, he After several days he got an idea and he went to the phone booth and he called the National Weather Service and asked, is the weather, coming weather going to be cold? It looks like this winter is going to be quite cold indeed, the meteorologist at the Weather Service responded. So the chief went back to his people and told them to collect even more wood in order to be prepared. A week later he called the National Weather Service again. Is it going to be a very cold winter? Yes, said the man at the National Weather Service it's definitely going to be a very cold winter. The chief again went back to his people and he ordered them to collect every scrap of wood they could find. Two weeks later, he called the National Weather Service again. Are you absolutely sure the winter is going to be very cold? Absolutely, the man replied. It's going to be one of the coldest winters ever. How can you be so sure, the chief asked. The weatherman replied, the Indians are collecting wood like crazy. So false refuge. False refuge is this kind of obsession with, you know, this thinking obsession, the compulsive activities we get involved with, staying busy, distracting ourselves. I mentioned earlier using uh, drugs and alcohol to numb ourselves. You know, they say some of us oversleep. In in India, they describe sleep as the poor man's nirvana. (laughs) So false refuge... In the most deep way, the deepest false refuge is that we continuously are churning out stories about self. It's like we have to keep on reasserting the self's existence. We're holding on to existence itself and we keep telling ourselves stories about who we are and what might go wrong and what we need to do and how we're on our way somewhere. And we're addicted to the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and we believe them. So again, Joko Beck describes this running away as a lifelong pattern and that until we come home to what's under it, 
What's under that need to keep on generating stories, to keep on trying to figure something out? What's underneath that tendency to keep on judging or blaming others? Are under the tendency to... It's false refuge to keep blaming ourselves. If only I blame myself enough, then maybe I'll get it right. Again, we're trying to control. True refuge, true refuge is a surrendering of the stories and the behaviors that separate and it's attention to what is true. It's not a doing as much as a paying attention, paying attention to what's here and true, what's truly reliable. So let's look at each of them and sense how and I find that for different people these gate, some find one gateway more natural and accessible than others but ultimately they all lead to the same place. Refuge in the Dharma. Refuge in the Dharma is refuge in what's right here now. Zen Master Ryokan said, if you want to know the Buddhist law, drift east drift west, entrusting yourself to the waves. Now this doesn't mean that we don't die. It means that it's possible to live fully if we're not trying to spend our lives managing what's happening. And the challenge is that we have this very deep reflex to run away. So the practice in taking refuge in the Dharma is learning to stay. And it can't come because we're, I'll stay if this will go away. (laughs) You know that one? I'll stay with this fear but we're waiting for it to subside. It's a more profound kind of surrendering and trusting. It's like I'll stay because in the deepest way I trust that staying lets me arrive in reality. And we trust reality more than any false refuge, any running away. So the beginning of the training of staying is to notice the storyline. One very powerful practice in refuge in the Dharma is just to ask yourself, if you're in any trouble at all, if things are hard, what am I believing right now? What am I believing? I know for myself that when I am unhappy, when I'm feeling down, there's always a belief that in some way I'm falling short. There's a story about a self that's falling short. And if I can even see that that's what I'm believing, that I've been collecting more evidence, you know, we collect evidence for how we're doing things wrong, if I can see it, then that begins to loosen the identification. I don't have to believe it if I can see that's the belief that's going on. The first step, notice the storyline. What are you telling yourself? The next step, and this is a training, is to come into the body and feel how the belief and the experience is living in this body. The throat, the chest, the belly. So the question, the inquiry usually is, what is happening inside me right now? And we're going to practice in a moment. The abbot of 
Amravati Monastery in England, uh, Ajahn Sumedho, his practice he describes in a very simple way in terms of taking refuge in the Dharma, in the path. It's that when things are difficult, he just says gently but firmly, it's like this. Okay, it's like this right now. So there's this acknowledging of the truth of, oh, the waves are like this right now. A friend of mine last year was going through a divorce and experiencing wave after wave of grief and anger and the stories were really proliferating how he was wrong, how she was wrong and how he should have seen the flags and, you know, he's just reliving and just absolutely torturing himself with the stories which we do. You know, the Tibetan Book of the Dead talks about bardo states and the bardo states are described as the, all the different body-mind states we can get caught in and the instructions and the passage through when we're dying to rebirth is just notice the states and let go. Don't get stuck in this bardo state. Don't get stuck in that bardo state. That they're all just created out of mind. Don't believe them. Look to the purity of your own true nature. As we live, we get caught in bardo states. And this was a bardo state. He was torturing himself by continuously producing stories about what was wrong, how things would never, his life would never be good again, how he had completely failed. So this is called dukkha, suffering. So what he began to do, what we practiced was anytime there was a story going on, as I often describe, he'd put a frame around it and say, okay, another story about one of us doing it wrong. And then he'd feel what was going on in his body. And he'd very gently say, okay, it's like this. It's like this. And what he found was that any thought he had was dukkha. It fueled the bardo state. It fueled the virtual reality of suffering. Now that doesn't mean any thought in our lives is like that, but I'm just saying that his thoughts were fear-based and hurt-based and he was believing them and they were creating suffering. So he started really getting how his thinking was creating more separation, more of a prison, and that his path was to keep dropping the stories, feeling his body, it's like this. This stabbing, this aching, this squeezing, the ways of fear, now here's the, the alchemy of taking refuge in the Dharma, of learning to stay. That when we don't believe the thoughts and when we open to the waves, that very opening to the waves, that very presence has a natural space and tenderness. It's almost like the realness of who we are can then reveal itself and come through because we're not fixated, we've created space we can come back home again, which is what true refuge means. Taking refuge in the Dharma is taking refuge in reality. Learning to stay. So for this man it took a while, but what he began to do is find a power, an empowerment in just being right here in presence when he wasn't caught in the judging, he found the kind of enlarged sense of being where he could stop the war. 
and move on. Rumi says, don't turn away. Don't turn away. Keep your eyes on the wounded place. That's where the light enters you. Now sometimes what we're experiencing is too much. The waves are like tidal waves and we cannot take refuge in the Dharma. We cannot directly open to them. And if you get the sense of this is overwhelming, I'm going to die of this, if you feel like you're getting a panic attack, that's a sign of, okay, we need to do a little kind of a creating some resourcefulness, an atmosphere that will help me take refuge in the Dharma. And we're going to talk about that because that's where taking refuge in the Sangha first might make more sense. Prayer. There's a lot of different ways we can begin to feel a sense of safety and belonging so we can open to the waves that are here just as they are. But when we do, because eventually, as long as we're running away, we're running away from our true nature. Eventually, by learning to stay, by having the courage to be with life no matter what it is, even when it's the anguish of the deepest loss, in that staying we find a sacred presence that is filled with love, and has the space to hold this life. Chogyam Trungpa called this the lion's roar. There is a power to this practice. When you learn to stay, when you get the knack of, okay, I'm going to be right here with this, it's like this, that it opens up a kind of courage and an experience that we can handle whatever comes up. And that's no small deal because most of us, whether we're conscious of it or not, are tensing against what's around the corner. And we're not living right now fully because we're anticipating and our bodies are tightening against and we're leaning forward or pulling back, but we're not open here. So this lion's roar is this trust that whatever comes up, there's this confidence, this heart and presence can handle it. That's the gift of taking refuge in the Dharma. So we'll practice that a little and then we'll go on to the other two refuges. So now if you want to change how you're sitting in any way, (laughs) it's a good time to do it. This will be a, these are short reflections, but I want to give you a taste. You might notice that we're changing the traditional sequence. It usually goes Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, and we're changing it. We're starting with the Dharma. And as a way of beginning with the Dharma, just become aware of the experience of sitting just as it is right now and feel from the inside out the aliveness of your body. Let your senses be awake so that you can feel the sensations in your body 
listen to sound, sense even the more distant sounds. The inquiry in refuge in the Dharma is what is happening. Can I be with this? Can I let this be? Perhaps there's something uh, challenging, distressing going on in your life right now to just feel your intention to let this be in your awareness and continue to take refuge in the Dharma to sense the situation to sense what it stirs up in you and feel the prayer may I take refuge in the Dharma in the actuality of your moment-to-moment experience Maybe the moment-to-moment experience is some beliefs about what's bad and what's happening. Can you notice that? And can you come in a very courageous and simple way to just breathe with the experience in your body right now? Entrusting yourself to the waves. So whatever the experience is right now, perhaps you feel restless or uncomfortable, maybe peaceful, maybe happy, maybe there's grief. I take refuge in the Dharma is that agreeing to be with the life that's here, just as it is. The poet Ghalib says, for the raindrop, joy is in entering the river. Travel far enough into sorrow, tears turn into sighing. When after heavy rain the storm clouds disperse, is it not that they've wept themselves clear to the end? In the classical practice of taking refuge, we simply mentally whisper, I take refuge in the Dharma. And that's a kind of bowing to and letting go into the truth of life, just as it is. I take refuge in the Dharma. 
So the next refuge is refuge in the Sangha, which means spiritual friends, spiritual community. And there's a paradox in our culture, which is that many of us some decades ago left organized religion to enter a spiritual path. And what that means is we left communities and we left organizations and really what spiritual path meant were practices like meditation or prayer, uh, yoga, tai chi, qigong, practices of awakening. We had the intention to bring the goodies that came out of those practices into our relationships, but the centerpiece of spiritual path was not the relationships, it was the practices. And yet, as many have matured, the realization is that sangha are relationships this field of relating is the path itself. It's not other than the path. It's the very domain where we can wake up out of separateness and realize the depths of love. If we think we can go off to a cave and practice and have deep realization, you can have some very penetrating realizations into the nature of reality. But to be an integrated being And by that I mean to be able to express that realization through your life. It takes being in the field of relationship. So through history, spiritual community has been the container for awakening. And whether it's the monasteries or tribes or anywhere that people devoted and committed to being awake, to spiritual freedom gather, there's a powerful experience of, um, of spirit. And many people have told me how they can feel that field here, that when we come together and there's that collective intention to get a little quiet and to touch our hearts and to see what's real, there's a power to that collectivity. And now, of course, modern science is verifying how the the power of coming together and how there's a field that's greater than an individual field in that interaction. So Sangha, spiritual community, is a powerful refuge for practice. And there are different ways that we take refuge in Sangha. And we can do it internally. I mean, that sounds a little ironic that we're talking about the field of relationship, but we can reflect on it and tune into it and nourish it through our meditation. So if you do metta and you bring to mind someone in your life that you care about and you sense the goodness of that person and then as you do that you feel your care and then you send a wish for that person's well-being there is a tendril of connectedness that is nourished and amplified through that reflection that actually comes alive in the relating, in the interpersonal relating. It fuels that. Now in IMCW, the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, many people have told me that some of their most powerful experiences of waking up have occurred in the Kalyana Mitta groups. And some of you might not be familiar, that means spiritual friends groups. We have these groups that meet every other week and eight to ten people and and many of them, there's I think about 28 of them now. They're all over the area. And it's a place where there becomes a kind of safety and intimacy where 
rather than sitting on the cushion alone, there's a sense of who am I in this field? And what the profound revelation is that, that really, really wakes us up is a sense of it's not my pain, but the pain. And it's not my happiness, but the happiness. There's a sense of that, this, that these weather systems that live through us are not so personal. It doesn't ma- mean that there's not a quality of uniqueness the way each of these body-minds expresses. But there's a sense of our belonging, our oneness, our connectedness that allows us to wake up out of that trance that keeps us grim and self-centered. Very beautiful practice. Very similar to what happens in 12-step groups. So many people have discovered the healing of rather than it's my pain or my addiction, it's just the addictive conditioning that's living through us. Now this, from uh, Michael Mead, he's a renowned storyteller and teacher, he talks about a healing ritual in Zambia. If a member of the tribe becomes ill, emotionally or physically, the belief is that an ancestor's tooth has lodged itself within the person and is responsible for the sickness. Because all of the members of the tribe are connected with each other, the suffering of one affects the others and all become involved in healing. The tribe's healing ritual is based on the understanding that the tooth will come out as the truth comes out. While the sick person must reveal the rage or hatred or lust he or she is experiencing, for the full truth to be revealed, each person in the tribe must express his or her own buried hurts and fears, anger and disappointment. As Michael Mead describes it, the release happens only when everything comes out in the midst of dancing and singing and drumming, the whole village gets cleansed by the release of the tooth through the release of these difficult truths. It's not personal. We go around feeling our fear or our shame or our drivenness or our insecurity and we think, oh, that's me and my personal problem. It's the weather systems that run through these nervous systems and minds. It's universal conditioning. And when we start telling the truth to each other, then we sense the belonging to the field and it wakes us up out of the prison of trance. Everyone longs to belong. Every one of us longs to feel a sense of belonging. And it's because we intuit the truth of belonging and we long to live in truth. And yet, as I mentioned with the big squeeze, we spend many of our living moments in the storyline of I'm separate, I'm better, I'm worse, something's wrong. So any reflection that we do internally that opens us to the truth that it's really here we are together and a quality of tenderness, gratitude, compassion that's taking refuge in Sangha. So I'll give you an example, it's very much in healing that one one student who had done some meditation was dealing with a lot of post-traumatic stress and she was an example of someone who I would not have encouraged to entrust herself to the waves. Why? 
if she said, okay, fear, fear, I'm going to open to the fear, she would have been possessed by it. It would have it flooded her, okay, re-traumatized. So instead, when the, the memories would start coming up, what um, I had, her, I asked her, well, who is it that you feel a sense of comfort and nourishment and, and safety with? She said, well, my Kalyanamitta group. But she said very specifically she named uh, two female friends and she named her husband and me. So her practice became when intensity and fear came up to call on her sangha. And she imagined this ring of people around her, these people that she knew cared about her, until eventually what happened was she would see the faces and the people but she sensed kind of a ring of light and protective energy around her and then and when she'd go to her cam group she'd have the same feeling that she was held in something and she said that when I am remembering my sangha this ring of trusted people those are the moments that I feel safe the little abused girl's there but I'm bigger In other words, she wasn't collapsed into and inside and identified as the abused little girl. She felt a sense of space and connection. So refuge in Sangha is refuge in a quality of wholeness and love that really is not only healing but it reveals the truth about who we are. It also, in a very deep way, is what allows us to have the space for not only the abuses and the wounds but for really the whole, the whole nature of loss that every one of us is facing. I mean, whether it's immediate and right here or in the background, every one of us is living with that vulnerability and insecurity. And the Buddha said that our fear is great but greater yet is the truth of our connectedness. So if you trust, you're the ocean. You're not as afraid of the waves, right? Okay? So another uh, story for you that um, some of you might have heard of Ishi in Two Worlds. It's an account of the last remaining Yana Indian of California. And he was befriended by anthropologists Theodora and Alfred Kroeber. And Ishi tells stories of the way of life of his people never more to be seen on this earth. He was the last of his people. Yet the most moving story wasn't told in this book that I'm referring to. Among all the teaching songs and exquisite knowledge of nature revealed by Ishi to the Krobers, there was a sacred song that he had been sworn never to teach to anyone outside the tribe. It was a song sung to the dying, used to sing his people back to their families, to their ancestral lands after death. No one else was allowed to know how to go there. Yet Ishi was alone at the end of his life, the last member of his tribe. It was then that he taught his last secret to the Krobers so they could sing him back to his people. So in the end, no matter how isolated or embattled our lives, We need one another as family. We need each other's hearts and songs to help find our way. And the truth is, every one of us forgets. And so the power of Sangha, of having a spiritual community, is really important. Now, in the classical Buddhist tradition, Sangha meant the community of the monks and nuns. 
how it's emerged now in the West is Sangha is us. It's any of us who have a conscious intention to open our hearts, to live from presence, to live from truth. And because we each have times of forgetting and remembering, the collective is an incredibly potent, magical part of the path of waking up. A certain Bektashi dervish was respected for his piety and appearance of virtue. Whenever anyone asked him how he had become so holy, he always answered, I know what is in the Quran. One day he had just given this reply to an inquirer in a coffee house when an imbecile asked, well, okay, what gives? What's in the Quran? In the Quran, said the Bektashi, there are two pressed flowers and a letter from my friend Abdullah. Okay, so close your eyes again. And just come home into the moment by feeling your breath. And feel your heart. And just let someone in your life arise where you feel a sense of loving, belonging. Maybe somebody that's not so complicated, where it's not a sticky relationship, but that might not exist for many of us, it doesn't. The being you bring to mind could be a pet, it could be someone that's no longer alive. just sense him or her and feel the presence of that being here. Call, call them here. Mentally whisper the being's name and then whisper it again and again. And let yourself know the truth of what you love about them. Perhaps the way that being shows love. their goodness. See the light in that being's eyes when they're happy. When they're fully open with you, right there with you. You can sense in those eyes the message of care. just feel the quality of togetherness, of being with the the field that's who you are in your togetherness, that you can feel with your heart. This is Sangha. This is where, by sensing the relationship between the waves of being, we sense that oceanness that connects us. It's hard to name, but there's some very true field of beingness, of heart, that connects us. You might bring another person into the field, 
just to practice with sangha, someone else that's your sangha, it doesn't have to be formal, it can be again a pet, a person that you don't see much, a child, an infant, someone who's died, they're still in the field of relationship in your heart. sensing their goodness. Sensing the connection. You might even offer a prayer. May you be happy. And then just relaxing, open the attention, feel in this field of sangha that's right here in the room, people that you know and don't know, that there's this shared intention to live from a sincere place, to serve, to savor, to wake up. Naomi Nye says this, she says, the Arabs used to say, when a stranger appears at your door, feed him for three days before asking who he is, where he's come from, where he's headed. That way he'll have the strength enough to answer. Or, by then, you'll be such good friends you don't care. Let's go back to that. taking refuge in the Sangha by simply whispering in your own heart and mind, I take refuge in the Sangha. I give myself to waking up in this field of loving relationships. So you might be wondering how at five to nine, and we've gone through two of three refuges, we're going to do the third refuge, which is Buddha nature. We're not. (laughs) I was too ambitious. So that's next week. How do we take refuge in Buddha nature? So thank you for staying. I hope to see you next week for refuge in the Buddha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.